And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. We podcast to you, husband and wife. Are you okay? I'm okay. Okay. Uh, we just got back from a wonderful trip that we took. We did. See some friends. Uh-huh. But uh, while we were away, we did some sightseeing. And I guess we've, we've been talking about it for the past few episodes. Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Everyone should we, probably know. We spent a few days in Philadelphia. And it was great. Mm-hmm. And we saw a lot of things. And... We saw a lot of things filled with history. So we thought the best thing we could do is share them with you, the listener, our, our first-hand experience in some living history, some preserved history there in uh, Philadelphia first, and then later we'll get to some other Pennsylvania sites. Yes. Uh, so the order we're going to be covering these in is actually the order in which we saw them. It, it's not chronological or even thematic. <laughs> Uh, it, it's only chronological in our sort of tourist wandering. <laughs> so, yeah, for the most part. So that's why we're going to start with the President's House, uh, which is what they've named the site of the third presidential mansion. It housed uh, Washington and Adams from uh, November of 1790 to May of 1800. Uh, Washington had also stayed in the same house earlier during the Constitutional Convention, so I guess it was familiar you knew yeah. where the closets were, where all the light switches. Yeah. Uh, it helps that there were zero light switches. Yeah, that definitely is a helping factor in he that. He knew where every single one wasn't. Uh, it initially became a historical site when the foundations were found uh, during construction of the Liberty Bell Center uh, only in the year 2000, very recent. The installation that they have is sort of a partial reconstruction. It's like an exploded view of this house. Uh, with exhibits dedicated to events that occurred there. So one thing is a big sign about John Jay being burned in effigy in the street outside. But nothing about J.J. the horse-faced horse. <laughs> it's true. We, we saw a lot of things that harken directly back to our 11th episode. Go and check it out. But not the, the true star of that tale. <laughs> oh, it was a missed opportunity, Philadelphia. Now, since Philadelphia has so many historical sites about its colonial era and, and the revolution, I mean, obviously, they, they sort of keep it all from bleeding into each other by having them about the things that happened specifically there. Yeah, that's really, really nice. A lot of, a lot of historical sites fall into the fact where they start talking about everything right. about the area, and then, then you go to a different site in the area, and they say the exact same thing, and you get... Pretty bored. Yeah, they, they managed to prevent repeating themselves so much with this strategy. So the president's house, the, the exhibits there are mostly about running the household, day-to-day uh, -to -day life with President Washington. And so therefore, it's mostly about his nine slaves he took with him to Philadelphia. There's a lot of information about their lives and a, a memorial to them. Now, at this point, Pennsylvania had abolished slavery about 10 years earlier, and slaves that spent six months in Philadelphia were legally freed. So the Washington family rotated their slaves back to Virginia to sort of reset the clock. Yeah, because they're jerks. Uh, you, you paid good money for those people. Two of the nine did escape, Oni Judge and Hercules. 
Oni Judge was Martha Washington's seamstress and escaped uh, rather than being given to her granddaughter as a wedding gift. Uh, she lived out her days uh, another 52 years as a fugitive in New Hampshire. Uh, Hercules was a cook who escaped in 1797. He was officially freed in Washington's will uh, when he died years later, but we don't know if Hercules ever knew that, if he ever knew that he was legally a free man and not simply a, a fugitive living on the run. Yeah. Although new research suggests that he escaped from Mount Vernon in Virginia when Washington was in Philadelphia. Now, the center of the site is a window down into the excavated foundation uh, they saw. You, you see the kitchen walls and a big bay window, uh, a round room where Washington did his work that's sort of like, before the Oval Office, there was this three square walls and one round one. You're <laughs> getting rounder through history. Uh, that's the real uh, uh, through line, I guess. So that's the first thing we saw, Washington's yeah. house, or I, the I, president's house. Uh, I took took a lot of pictures on this trip. Yes. And we're uh, planning to put a bunch up on the History Honey's Facebook with captions and stuff that will give perfect examples of what we are talking about when you're mm -hmm. talking about, like, like, the president's house here and what it looks like yeah, at that yeah. exhibit. Um, we'll have some pictures of that along you're with everything else. People who previously followed our Instagram saw some of our, our quick pics, our phone yeah. pics going up in the moment. Yeah. But you got your, your big fancy camera. There's, there's a lot more pictures. Good. There's a <laughs> lot more pictures you'll be able to see on Facebook soon. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Keep it in mind. Well, the next place we went, which was like 20 feet away, <laughs> um, was the Liberty Bell Center, mm -hmm. uh, which you guessed it, houses the Liberty Bell. That's so convenient. It is so convenient. It is one of the two places you have to go through metal detectors to get in. So, so what is the Liberty Bell, dear? Well, it's a bell. Okay. It is it's actually a very cool bell. I wasn't I wasn't quite sure it was going to be as cool as it was. It was pretty cool to see. Um, so it is a bell that originally hung in the Philadelphia State House. Mm -hmm. um, it was forged in London and arrived in Philadelphia in 1752. They had some bad luck, because the first time it was rung, it cracked. Oh, oh. snap. So then, uh, local founders John Pass and John Stow broke the bell into pieces, melted it down, and recast it. Now, these are founders as in people with a foundry. They didn't, like, found Philadelphia. Yeah. Right. They, they yeah. Had, that, that was a guy named Penn. <laughs> yeah. Different dude. Different. So they recast it. But it sounded awful. <laughs> so they recast it again. And it was good enough. It, it was better. It was this, you know, this is okay. We can deal with this. Stories about it say that it was rung to celebrate the vote for independence on uh, July 4th, 1776. But that never happened. No. No. It was rung for all kinds of things, including the first public reading of the Declaration on July 8th. The bell is inscribed. Um, it says... Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, which is Leviticus 25.10. Then it goes on to say, by order of the assembly of the Providence of Pennsylvania for the state house of Philda. Does not say Philadelphia fully. No. And, <laughs> and it uh, spells Pennsylvania wrong. But that was an accepted spelling at the time mm -hmm. and is also uh, on the signature page of the Constitution. So... It wasn't just a typo. That's how they did it back then. It's fine. 
One N or two Ns, they were both correct back then. It's okay. (laughs) What Um, a crazy time to be alive. So the bell was removed from uh, the city in 1777, um, along with nearly all of the city's other bells, because they were afraid that advancing British troops would take them and melt them down for ammunition. The famous current crack came from some unknown event between 1817 and 1846. The event is unknown. It's very unclear about how it initially right. happened. In 1846, there's suddenly a newspaper article talking about that that famous crack. And that's the first time it's mentioned in the historical record. So sometime. <laughs> Somewhere in there. Sometime it happened. And I assume, like, since they know it's between that time, 1817 was, like, we, the we, last we, time it was cast or something. The, the last time anyone had written about it definitely not being yeah, cracked. Like, oh, it's in good shape. It looks very nice. Just a 30-year so, gap of somewhere. Something so, very so, significant happened. Something happened. Write your things down, people. Come on. <sighs> Jumping ahead to like right now, it's pretty cool that if you look at the bell, there's the big crack it's known for. But if you look really closely, there are these like t- this tiny little hair crack yeah. that's going past where like the big crack ends and unless you look super closely and know where to look you you can't really see it it just wiggles sort of up and like around to the right like counterclockwise and and it goes up through the inscription you gotta you gotta sort of eh, peek at it close but it's it's It's, growing yeah still it's it's pretty interesting so the name liberty bell yeah that's kind of strange because people don't really name bells if anything, it was the, the bell from the state house. Yes. Not a very catchy name. No. Why does it have this name? Mm-hmm. Well, the first reference to the name um, is in the New York Anti-Slavery Society's journal, the anti-slavery record in 1835. It's the first time they like referenced it as the Liberty Bell. Right. The bell became a symbol for the abolitionist movement contrasting the inscription with the status of slaves. You know, this thing that proudly says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. And they're like, uh, hold up now. (laughs) Bell says all, all right? And you ain't doing all. So it became a symbol for them. There were poems and songs. Yeah, they they used its image on things as well, you know, like printing it on paper, um, sewing it on things. Um, It became a symbol for them. Due to its growing popularity, um, it was put on display and kept in Independence Hall. Um, At the time, Independence Hall was a courthouse where judges enforced the Fugitive Slave Act. So that only like heightens the irony that that these campaigners were were trying to to use it to exemplify. Yes. Um, It did also travel around to World's Fairs and special occasions across the country, uh, after every trip, it returned in more damaged, less good shape. Yeah, and so it will never, crack. ever move again. No, <laughs> no, it just, it's going to stay there. That's its home. It's there. The bell also became a symbol of liberty for other struggles as well. Uh, the Women's Liberty Bell uh, was a 1915 replica to 
uh, advocate for suffrage. Mm-hmm. The clapper of the bell was chained in place to represent women's lack of a voice. Although when the 19th Amendment was passed, they like snipped that chain and the bell actually rang and it was, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty neat. Gus Grissom's mercury capsule was named Liberty Bell 7 and had a crack painted on it. <laughs> Fun fact there. Mercury capsules are really bell-shaped. So they that, are. That works. It was really cool to see the bell. One of my, mm-hmm. my favorite things about like how the building is set up, you can see Car- uh, Independence Hall behind it yes. through the window, which is really cool. We, we should mention that the uh, Philadelphia State House and Independence Hall are the same building. Yes, they are the same thing. It, it got renamed later about the same time the Liberty Bell did. Yes. Good picture-taking hack. Go to the backside. Go to the back. No one's back there. You can get a beautiful picture of the backside with no one in front of the bell. And you get the natural light streaming in from so, behind so you, you onto it. you can actually see it and not just like the silhouette. But everybody wants to get a picture of the front. Yes. They, they can't help themselves. It's a crack yes. addiction. One of my favorite things is they had chunks of like jewelry and souvenirs made from metal from the bell. Yeah. Like back before they remembered, wait a minute, this is an artifact that should be preserved. We shouldn't take these little chunks that are falling off. (laughs) And like the whole gallery of people doing photo ops with the bell in their struggles for liberty, like the Dalai Lama does a big old speech about freeing Tibet and Liberty Bell right behind him. That sort of thing. The the next historical site we visited (laughs) was Carpenter's Hall, which you might remember from, again, the John Jay episode as the site of the first Continental Congress, the first collection of the 13 colonies coming together for collective action uh, focused, at least in some part, towards independence and and resisting uh, British rule. Uh, The building still hosts meetings of the Carpenters Company of Philadelphia, the the organization that built it and gave it its name. The Carpenters Company is the oldest trade guild in America. And despite all the things that happened there, the exhibits are mostly about... (laughs) The Carpenter's Company and, and the field of carpentry, yeah. their, their trade. It's great. You go in there thinking you're going to hear about all this crazy stuff and be like, no, here's something about a chair. Like the, the big central thing, it's a small, small building. It's very small. The, the bottom is one big open room. The top is another open room with seats that you're not allowed to go in no. where they actually held the meetings. Yeah. And so the the central exhibit is just a model of the building you are in, showing the carpentry techniques that they used to build it. Yeah. It's charming. So we're back at Independence Hall, site of the Second Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention, mm-hmm. and many important things in early Pennsylvania history, because it was their state house. Yes. Uh, it was only named Independence Hall by the Marquis de Lafayette uh, when he was touring America in 1824 into 1825. He called it this Great Hall of Independence in a September speech delivered on the steps outside. And they're like, hmm, we yeah, like that. That's, good. that's a good that's name. Good. We should keep that. See, at that point, the building had fallen into disrepair and neglect. It was just sort of there and not being used for much of anything. This tour by Lafayette across the country, all 14, 18 states at the time, (laughs) uh, is really credited with building a sense of pride in uh, American history and independence that was just sort of taken for granted in our 50-year-old nation. The the new generation just sort of didn't really care that much Mm -hmm. about what their dads did, (laughs) what what their grandparents did. So it's also where sort of the mythologizing begins. Part of that is naming this old 
semi-decrepit state house, the Grand Independence Hall. So let's rewind back to why it got that name. Uh, July 2nd, the American Independence Day, perhaps. (laughs) This is sort of a common bit of trivia if you haven't heard it, but there is a lot of question over what day should be celebrated as Independence Day. Uh, July 2nd was when the Continental Congress voted for independence. Uh, John Adams wrote in a letter to his wife that night that, quote, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. We messed up. A little bit. We got <laughs> so close, though. Now, they also, as part of this resolution, accepted the first draft of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. July 3rd was editing day. Uh, They cut, uh, notably, a reference to slavery, where one of the accusations against King George was that he treated his American subjects as if they were slaves. And so a lot of delegates were like, we cannot sign a document that says treating people like slaves is a bad thing. We we can't do that, man. (laughs) So that got cut. Uh, A lot of things were streamlined. A lot of grammar was tweaked and perfected, got a dot every I, cross every T. In the end... The first draft was cut by about a quarter. The final declaration was approved on the 4th. So there is a strong claim for it being the the one and true Independence Day regardless. I mean, I guess when, like, July 4th falls each year, like, sometimes John Adams gets gets his hope and wish. If it falls on, like, a Tuesday or, like, a Monday or whatever, (laughs) you know, people celebrate over the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Fireworks displays sometimes happen on days other than that. Sometimes he gets what he hoped for. Well, he got to be president. There's that too. So back in June, John Adams put together a committee to write the declaration uh, with himself, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, and of course, Thomas Jefferson, who did the heavy lifting of writing the first draft. Uh, It was read to the public on the steps of the Philadelphia State House on July 8th when the state house bell was rung to celebrate. Patriots in the crowd came in and tore the royal coat of arms from the courthouse wall. You see, the, the state house held the branches of government. One side is the courthouse, the other side is the assembly house, where they had these meetings. And upstairs, the uh, governor did his work and, and entertained guests. So they tore the royal coat of arms off the courthouse wall, paraded it through the city, and then it wound up on top of a bonfire. Exciting day. Yeah. Signing of the document actually began in August and took a few years to complete before everyone who had voted for it had a chance to put their John Hancock below John Hancock's. Takes a while to get things around. Yeah. Get everyone in town. You know, some people had to go back and do their government jobs back in their states. Some people took so long because they were busy fighting the war as officers. Now, that body, the Second Continental Congress, became the national government under the Articles of Confederation. And it spent some of its time, at least three periods of its operation, in that same hall. But uh, when the British came in and occupied, they moved to Maryland. They spent some time in uh, New Jersey. Uh, Wartime governments got to move where it's safe. So 1777, it's one of those times of occupation. Uh, The state house was used to house American prisoners. 
up where the, the governor would once, you know, entertain guests of the state and, and have these balls is now just rows of cots of uh, American officers being held as POWs. But then all that business gets resolved in 1789, mm. as we discussed a couple yes. episodes ago. Got to write a new constitution because the old one sucks. Yeah. Uh, delegates arrived to amend the articles and instead write a new document to replace it. They kept the windows shuttered all summer. Very stuffy building. Uh, it was bad enough when they were open when we were in there. Those strange 80-degree October days. <laughs> so uh, one thing we glossed over and now that we're repeating ourselves, do you think we can treat this as an overthrow of the government? Is that a question that makes sense when most of the people doing it were the old government? That's a good question. That's a, a good thing for, for people to weigh in on our social media yes. presence. You get a vote. <laughs> you should go vote on Tuesday, not just listen to our podcast. Oh, yeah. This is coming out on election day. Yeah. Go vote. Yeah. <laughs> go vote, people. If you live here, of course. Like, I mean, but go vote. If you're living in a democratic country, <laughs> vote whenever you are able. Yes. Most of our listeners, two-thirds of you are American. So, hey, that means you today. Go vote. Independence Hall isn't the only building in this square. It mm -mm. is adjacent to Old City Hall, which housed the U.S. Supreme Court from 1791 to 1800. That's where John Jay ruled his seven cases. Yeah. Uh, on the opposite side is Congress Hall, which housed the U.S. Congress from 1791 uh -huh. to 1800, uh -huh. back when Philadelphia was the, the national capital. Uh -huh. Now, in the lower level, it holds... The copy of the declaration that was read in, to the public on July 8th. Yeah. It holds an original copy of the Articles of Confederation. And it has Washington's personal draft of the Constitution with his handwritten notes in the margins. Yeah. But you were very excited about what was inside I there. was. I, I mean, mean, I thought it was cool, too, but you were... You were Pumped. I was too distracted by thinking there was a ghost. So they also have the inkwell mm -hmm. that was there the whole time. Like people dipped their pens in that for for all of our founding documents. Yes, it was very cool. It was definitely something that could easily be missed if you go there. So yeah, uh, if you go when you come out, it is on your right. Then we saw one of my favorite places, mm -hmm. Elfrith's Alley. Yeah. Which is the nation's oldest residential street. People have lived there continually since 1702. And it's just a, it's a block, block long. long. Just a block long. Two sides, you know, lined on both sides with these amazing houses. And it's one of those, like, it's a road, but not really a road streets in Philadelphia. Yeah. Let's talk about the layout of <laughs> yeah. Philadelphia for a second. It's a very old city. The, yes. the streets were laid down a long time ago, yes. which means a lot of them are very narrow because they were built for foot and horse cart traffic. Yes. So, like, there's a lot of, like, okay, that's definitely a road. And then that is technically a road. It's got a sign. It's got but, a name. But it's just cobblestones and it's only eight feet wide. Yeah. What the heck? And then there's other ones that I'm, like... Is that a road or an alley? I can't tell. I'm but pretty they don't sure. really have alleys. I'm pretty so. sure Philadelphia, at least Center City, has zero alleys. So yeah, it's one of it's one of those like eight feet wide ones where it's cobblestone. Currently there are thirty-two houses on the street. Um all of them were built between uh seventeen twenty-eight and eighteen thirty-six. Uh and it also has kitties. Yeah. There there were there were kitties out and they were 
just sitting there and walking around and being being cats. And it was very cool. The people who live there are very interested in it being this historical street. Yes, like, yes. They even have two events in the year where you can just go through people's houses. Yeah. Well, and then they so, have like a, a guided tour. I think it's only on weekends when this time of year now. But where like they'll talk about you know, the history of it, mm-hmm. about the houses, who had lived there and all that too. So it's really, really interesting. It's definitely like stepping back into a different era in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. So after that, we, we took a meandering took, walk. Yes, we took a very long walk. We wandered in a few places. We walked some. We saw the outside of the Betsy Ross house. Yes, we saw that. Which is across the street from a flag store. And yes. I think they knew what they were doing. I am still very curious. Like we didn't, we never went into the Betsy Ross house. I am curious. The only thing I'd want to really know is like, why is there that cat statue fountain? Yeah. Like, was, was Betsy Ross really into cats? I don't know. I don't know. We saw the love thing mm-hmm. that everyone sees, the big love sign. Which is right next to... Philadelphia City Hall. Yeah. Which is the most impressive city hall building I've ever seen. It's, yeah. it's crazy. I don't think we're going to see any city hall to top it, no. And it's got some crazy history. It began construction in 1871, and it didn't end until 1901. 30 years! It's worth the wait. It, they did a good job. Uh, it was the world's tallest habitable building, um, and it's still the world's tallest masonry building. Yeah. If you want to get taller, you need a steel superstructure. Yeah. Uh, it is topped by a 37-foot statue of William Penn, uh, the world's tallest building top statue. It's even hollow, like you can pop out of his hat. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to pop out of his hat. <laughs> Actually, no, I probably don't. That'd be really scary. It's really high up there. It is a square building with like a center courtyard, so you can like walk through yeah, it. Yeah, you can take a you shortcut can go, through like, the building. Sit in it. There's like a subway entrance in the middle of it. The center has a map of uh, Penn's original urban plan as well, like in the cement, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. Old Philadelphia is based on this grid plan with five squares mm-hmm. and a city hall right in between the two rivers to, to sort of draw people in the middle. It didn't work at all. Everybody just stayed on the one river for like a couple centuries. <laughs> but yeah, Philadelphia City Hall is really cool. Uh, we, we head up to Christ Church, founded in 1695, the first Church of England congregation in Philadelphia. Uh, Pennsylvania was founded as an experiment in religious living. Penn was uh, a big old Quaker and uh, invited all of his friends, which is to say the Society of Friends, to, to live their Quaker lives. But they needed more people besides. We talked about uh, Mennonites and, and the Amish. Mm-hmm. getting invitations to settle. And so, obviously, some Church of England people followed along, and they needed some place to practice that faith. It was also a condition of William Penn's original charter from uh, the Crown. <laughs> you want to be an English colony? You need an English church. There you go. The current building was erected between 1727 and 1744. Uh, the, the big pointy steeple came in 10 years later, uh, which made it, at the time, the tallest building in the United States. The baptismal font they have in there, behind this little uh, uh, rope, yeah, (laughs) 
Uh, well, that rope's necessary because it's over 500 years old. Yes. Which, there's not like a plaque or anything that tells you that. No. You're just like walking by and we heard like this tour guide lady tell someone else, oh yes, that's 500 years old. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like it ain't no thing. Like, oh yeah, that's just there. Uh, it is a baptismal font that uh, baptized William Penn himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But before he converted to, to the Society of Friends. Their congregation included 15 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. Betsy Ross was a member there after she married into the church and left the Quakers. Now, there are some people buried in the church grounds, both like... In the church? And the the little yard next door. Uh, They include Robert Morris, financier of the revolution. Uh, One of two men to have signed uh, not only the Declaration of Independence, but also the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. We have Robert Morris University here, and that is who it is named after. I was curious about that. Now, some of those notable members throughout history have their pews marked with little tiny plaques. Mm -hmm. Uh, We sat in Benjamin Franklin's old seat. Yeah, that was cool. Which was pretty cool. That was cool. Uh, Just one or two ahead of that was a a pew reserved for the colonial governor, and and the king's seal was above it. Now, that that big parade through town on July 8th, they tore that one down, too, and split it in half, and that is on display sort of off in the front corner. (laughs) Now, that pew became the president's pew, and uh, in the 10 years Washington served as president in Philadelphia, that's where he attended services. Yes. You stood in that pew. I you stood. Did not I didn't. Sit. Sit. I no. I could. I. I mean, I could. I was allowed, but I couldn't. <laughs> it's, just, it's just too much. Too much. Now that church and uh, Reverend William White were both central in the Episcopal Church, uh, its founding, which is to say, splitting off from the Church of England. We don't have the state. We shouldn't have their state church. We're Episcopals now. We just invented it. It's the new thing. Yeah, so then we also went uh, to the burial ground of Christ mm-hmm. Church, which is not right next door to the church. It's, it's a couple not. blocks. It's a few blocks away. As we said, there are people buried just outside the church on the ground there. That's not That's not it. Don't get confused. <laughs> uh, so the Christ Church burial ground uh, is the resting place of five declaration signers, including Benjamin Rush, mm-hmm. who uh, was He's also- got a school named after him. He does. Is the hospital the same rush? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got a hospital here for that. Also the father of American psychiatry, Francis Hopkinson, uh, Joseph Hughes, George Ross, and Benjamin Franklin. Mm -hmm. The Franklin plot um, can be seen from the street. It's right Um, there in the corner. It's right there in the corner, and I think it was very smart of them to put a non-brick wall fence (laughs) by it because... I'm sure a lot of people will go there just to see him. There Mm -hmm. were a lot of school groups we saw that were just stopped right there. So a lot of visitors will toss pennies onto his plot. According to listener Tammy, sometimes he tosses back. I did not see any pennies get tossed back. (laughs) So, yeah, the the legend is that people don't only toss pennies on for luck. They they toss them on. uh, it, It is said you'll get a bit of Benjamin Franklin's wisdom, which is odd. Yeah. Because he said a penny saved is a penny earned. Like, the first thing you learn is that was a stupid thing to do. Yeah, like, don't... I guess it's a donation to the church now, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. come on, guys. It would make sense if you threw money with his face. Why isn't yeah. it covered in $100 bills? <laughs> it's not Lincoln's grave. 
Um, some other people that are buried there are uh, uh, John Dunlap, who was buried in 1812, uh, is the printer of the Declaration of Independence. Michael Hilgis, uh, buried in 1804, the first treasurer of the United States. Back when they had no money. <laughs> Charles Mason, uh, buried in 1786, astronomer, surveyor, uh, laid out the Mason-Dixon line in 1763. Mm-hmm. The titular Mason of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. I don't know where Dixon is. I don't know. Did not see him there, so. Uh, Philip Singh Physic, uh, buried in 1837, known as the father of modern surgery. And so and many And so others. many other people. Like, it is, you can, when you go, they actually ask you if you'd like a map. It does not list everyone buried there, but it lists a lot of... of very notable people. Uh, you which, c- yeah. You can find early uh, Commodores of the American Navy. You can find all manner of Philadelphia's mayors, Pennsylvania yeah. governors, yeah. and uh, a guy who served as the gravedigger for Christ yeah. Church for like 50 years. Yeah. And it's the thing that you, def- you need that map. Oh, because yes. there's not many gravestones that are actually still like readable. Yeah, most of them are pretty pretty worn out. I I enjoyed seeing the burial ground. Yeah, was cool. there are some very interesting um, grave markers that I've really not seen before, like those table ones. Yeah, there were ones that were literally like it was a cement table with like table legs. I thought those were really interesting. Mm-hmm. This episode keeps seeming like a review because we've talked about yet another graveyard that was built outside town and then town came to meet it. Yeah. (laughs) That happens. There was this coloration line Mm -hmm. on a lot of the grave markers and um, someone was getting like a private tour. So I didn't really feel like I could interrupt to ask about this. (laughs) Well, I guess you'd have to slip them 20 bucks to be part of the tour. (laughs) It sounded like the ground had covered the majority of the grave markers and has since been removed, which is why so much of it is unreadable. And you can kind of see this line among most of the markers where there's a coloration difference, where it's like definitely dirt and plant-based material had been against it. Right. Um, So like below that line, it's a lot more readable because it was protected from the wind and the rain. Yeah. And above that, good luck. Yeah. It's a good thing they keep records of who's where because you're never going to know. Yeah. So, But we didn't really get a direct answer there and we didn't really see anything online about that. But But, I mean, it definitely makes sense because over time, you know, ground moves, Mm -hmm. plants grow, stuff changes. It's in a continual state of restoration and and maintenance. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, the Christchurch Church and and their historical society do great work there, frankly. Yes, yes. Thumbs up to them. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some things outside of uh, Philadelphia's center city coming up after this break. everybody uh so we didn't just do colonial era stuff no so no. uh the next day actually you you took uh the lead in our day two itinerary yes i did <laughs> i had my thing i most wanted to go to which ended up being definitely my favorite thing and i think your favorite thing as yeah. well 
Or at least it's up there. It's certainly up there. Eastern State Penitentiary is yeah. where I wanted to go so bad. Can we be honest? I did not know it was going to be half as cool as it was. <laughs> like, there's so much to it. There's mm-hmm. so very much to it. It was a prison that operated from 1829 to 1971. It's a bit longer than I think they estimated it would be going. It's a really long time. Eastern State Penitentiary actually refined the system of separate incarceration, uh, emphasizing reform over punishment. Which is how it got the name, right? You were there to be penitent. Is yes. the first penitentiary. We, we were going to get to that. Oh, nerds. You jumped ahead on uh, me. Darn it. But yes, it it is how it got the name. Virtually all uh, prisons designed in the 19th century across the world were either of two systems. There was the New York State Auburn system, uh, which was like forced labor, in silence with everyone, physical punishment. Uh, so what we think of as prisons. Prisons. Uh, very much what like Sing Sing is known for, mm-hmm. etc. Or the Pennsylvania system, which is the Eastern State, state idea. Mm-hmm. Eastern State was definitely not the favorite one in the U.S., <laughs> but the Pennsylvania system uh, was a model for over 300 prisons worldwide. One of the things that's cool is on the way out, there's that map of a bunch of prisons around the world that, yeah. that clearly took their floor plan from Eastern State. Yes. Before this time, the majority of 18th century prisons were just large holding pens. Mm-hmm. In 1787, a group of well-known and powerful Philadelphians uh, met in Benjamin Franklin's home. They uh, called themselves the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. You cannot fit that on a business card. No. That's awful. It's it's very long. Um, Their concerns were over the conditions in prisons, obviously. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush who we've mentioned just a little while ago, uh, voiced the society's goals to see Pennsylvania set the international standard for design in prisons. It was a radical idea they had to build a true penitentiary, Mm -hmm. a place designed to create regret and penitence in a criminal's heart. It would not just punish them, but it would move the criminal to spiritual reflection and change. So they wanted to have a system of isolation from where from other prisoners with labor where a prisoner could focus on uh, their penance. So you just sit there and think about what you've done. Well, sometimes they had, they had tra- a trade. Okay, yeah. Like they could they could make shoes or weave something. But yes, they pretty much, they sat there with their trade, a Bible, and their and thoughts. Themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and that was what they had. It took 30 years for the society to convince uh, the building of this type of prison. Eastern State broke the norm of the day um, with that, the major idea of abandoning corporal punishment. Uh, inmates, they're supposed to be in complete isolation. So they were hooded whenever they were outside the cells. Part of that was so they couldn't understand the layout of the place. Mm-hmm. And part of that is so they couldn't see other prisoners' faces. So no one could recognize them. Because the idea was you would pay, you know, you do your time, and then you'd be able to go out as a yeah. working member of society again, and you would not be held to what your prison time was. Yeah. Like, Nobody no one could know. spot you as a criminal. Yeah. Guards would also walk around with socks covering their feet, so to muffle their steps. 
um, and inmates never saw another inmate well there. This philosophy of independence and isolation didn't really work. <laughs> you know, at, at the time they thought it would, but more often that type of isolation um, and those left in solitary confinement face a lot of mental breaks mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, problems there. Like, people would take tours of this place when it was in its early days because it was so, what a revolutionary idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some people walked away saying, wow, this could really change people's lives and humane treatment of of the criminal class. And then you had uh, some people, including Charles Dickens, like, wow, this is the most messed up thing. You're going to ruin people's brains. Yeah. (laughs) And, I mean, it's something we know now is... A major problem. Yeah. And not- solitary confinement is only used, like, in extreme circumstances. And then it was the default. It was... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so someone who stole, like, a loaf of bread then had to go into solitary confinement for two years as mm-hmm. their punishment. That's... And then they steal some candlesticks. <laughs> who am I? <laughs> so with time, they did move away from this into... The more typical idea we know today. First off, when the building was built, it was the most expensive American building of the time. Yeah. And uh, when it was built, it was built, it's like one and a half to two miles from Philadelphia. It was built on the outskirts. Right. Totally not the case now. (laughs) There are houses across the street from it. It is the weirdest thing. So Eastern State was designed by John Haviland. Um, It opened on October 25th, 1829. Now, Spooky. <laughs> it was built with seven cell blocks. Uh, the seven cell blocks coming from a central location like a wheel spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, it had so a, you can just stand in the middle and turn around and look down yep. and see every single cell. And, and that, was, that was the thing. It was a way to have great surveillance, to be able to always see what's happening, to be able to hear what's happening, um, to be able to get anywhere you need to get. Yeah. And even that that's the thing that I think influenced a lot more prisons, the floor plan. Yeah. Than the whole isolation and silence. Yeah. So the original design was for seven one-story cell blocks. But by the time the third one was complete, they were already at capacity. The following cell blocks were built with uh, two floors instead of one. You should never compromise on your artistic <laughs> vision, Haviland. You are a genius. <laughs> They know nothing. So each inmate originally had their own cell. Adjacent to the cell was a private outdoor courtyard. Obviously, that kind of changed when they started doing two uh, yeah, how, floors Yeah, how do you do that when you're stacking them? Um, you, you don't. Yeah, So, but originally they had a private outdoor yard um, that was surrounded by a 10-foot wall. And the cell could only be accessed by entering from the back of the exercise yard through a small door that you had to duck to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then inside the cell wall facing like the cell block hallway, there was just a small opening to pass like food through. Mm-hmm. So there there wasn't a door as you knew. Uh, eventually that did change. Um, and very heavy wood doors were used there. Um, but for quite a while, it was just a small opening. Now, inmates also had, like, scheduled exercise times so that no two inmates would be outside, like, next to each other at the same time. So that way they could not talk to each other. 
Um, the cell was also lit by a skylight in the vaulted ceiling. The idea of the light from heaven, the ever-watching eye of God, was your only light, was mm-hmm. always coming down into your cell. And as we mentioned, they had a Bible and a trade that was in their cell along with a bed. The cells were, like, very advanced for the time. Like, mm-hmm. they had a faucet with running water over a flush toilet. But they also had piping um, along the walls for central heating. Things that were not common yeah, at like, the time. They they made a point that this was a time when the president of the United States was using a chamber pot. Yeah. And these uh, prisoners had flush toilets. And, run, and running water. And, like, yeah. they had running water in their cell. Inside of the building had um, these 30-foot barrel-vaulted ceilings with, like, arched windows and doorways and skylights. It was, it was very much designed like a church. Mm-hmm. It's very much church-like, where then the outside of the building, what you see from the roadway, is very gothic, medieval, and intimidating. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting difference there of, like, one's meant to intimidate, the other one is meant to cause penitence, as we said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there are these arrow-slit windows uh, facing the street, yeah. right? But then you see that wall from the back, and it's not a window, it's just a dent in the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just for effect. It's just for that. As the prison grew, mm-hmm. more and more cell blocks were added. Initially, as we said, seven original cell blocks. They got up to 15. 14 and 15 were built by prisoners and done very hastily because they were overcrowding. And yeah. 15 was... For the worst behave, it was also held prisoners awaiting execution. It's also really freaking terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Cell yeah. block 15 is creepy. So 15 is very much block. 13 is like the one cell block you can't see from end to end. It has like a curve in it. Yeah, they, they uh, started yeah. filling in the spaces between the spokes, and then they ran out of even those spaces. Yeah, it's crazy. But as this construction went on, the whole uh, Philadelphia method Mm -hmm. was abandoned and it just became a very standard prison. Yeah. So that, like you said, uh, instead of everybody getting put in the back of the cell, those were boarded up and uh, became like storage rooms or whatever. Yeah. And uh, people just walked down the hallways that weren't meant for prisoner population to walk down yeah so originally and one you can see like where they had the wood doors and then they moved on to like metal gates and various things for those spots so while uh the the old system may not have been as humane and enlightened Mm -hmm. as the people who put it together thought well now they're using uh, uh, infrastructure tuned to that to do something entirely different so it became an awful awful prison to be in just from the architecture yeah and going from a cell that was made to hold one person that's now holding two yeah never mind that it's falling apart because it's almost 200 years old yep the entrance that was towards the outside of the room that's the thing that is crazy like you're if you're a prisoner after a while you know after things have started to change and you're sitting there in your cell and all you see is where there used to be a door to outside Mm -hmm. that is now bricks and mortar bricks and mortar but it's a different color so like you can still see where it is and you know you don't get to use that you don't get to go out there 
Ugh. Like, that's got to be terrible to know, like, that's what used to be there, what mm-hmm. you used to have had. Eastern State held a lot of notorious criminals yeah. over time, including Pep, the cat-murdering dog. <laughs> My favorite. This dog has a mugshot, and this mugshot, mm-hmm. I have seen it, like, online multiple times. So in 1924, Pennsylvania governor at the time, gave the dog a life sentence. Um, The dog allegedly murdered the governor's wife's cat. The dog, Pep, had an inmate number, which was number C2559, and had a mugshot. Now, I I hate to pop the bubble, but there are also letters between the warden and the governor saying, hey, there's this other prison that has a prison dog, and it's really good for morale there. Can we get a dog? Yes, that is that is also that is also a thing. So I think Pep was framed. Poor Pep. Al Capone also spent eight months, beginning in 1929. There, they I think for like possession of a firearm or something. Yeah, some really small charge, considering it's Al Capone. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the papers reported on his luxury treatment that you know his cell was decked out. In carpets and furniture, which is something they've actually, like, recreated mm-hmm. in a cell. But uh, a through- radio playing Chopin. Yes. But through recent research, uh, this has been called in question because there's certain communication and notes that state that Al Capone had a cellmate. Well, how, how luxurious can it be? Yeah. Yeah. Or various other things like that that make it... Or mm. one thing, like, there is evidence that he had a radio that he bought from another inmate. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, are radios really unusual uh, luxury? Yeah. Because some, some schmo had one. Yeah. So there are many, many people who tried to, like, escape from there. There was I read something that actually – it was when the prison was still operational, but they were, like, building something or digging something. They found, like, several dozen partially dug tunnels oh. or something. But – on April 3rd, uh, 1945, Willie Sutton and several others escaped after digging a 97-foot tunnel. Willie Sutton is uh, an <laughs> infamously flamboyant bank robber. He was he loved the fame of, of Robin Banks. Yes. Now, everyone that escaped from that was returned to custody. One of them even walked uh, back up into the penitentiary and asked to be let in because he was hungry. He just couldn't make it on his own anymore. Yeah. But, I mean, this is this is crazy. You can go in the cell where the hole is originally mm-hmm. in. And first off, it's small. Yeah. So, they- I, like, 97 feet, that's really far. They had to go out from the cell block. Down. Down. Under the giant wall. Mm-hmm. And then, like... And then back up again. And then back up again. That's crazy. There's something recently uh, where the they were exploring it with some... Um, electronic cameras mm-hmm. going down into it. And I know they're continuing to work on figuring out how they can bring it to like visitors. Yeah. How how they can Right now you you have a video of the excavation. Yes. You have the the hole in the wall and a stripe painted on the pavement to like follow it. Yes. But they are continuing to research it to mm-hmm. figure out what else they can do with it. As we said, prisoners were there for a very long time. Yeah. The prison was in operation until 1971. When it finally closed, the building stood empty for like 20 years. Now, the city of Philadelphia bought the property and they thought about redeveloping it, 
into like a mall or like housing, um, but nothing was ever done. And during its time of being abandoned, um, trees and plants grew up into like an urban jungle around the buildings. Yeah. It was also being continually raided by like scrappers and salvage people trying to like tear out the piping to sell for scrap. Copper piping, man. Big uh, business for that. Mm Mm-hmm. It was eventually taken over by a historical society who wanted to preserve it. Mm -hmm. So in 1994 is when the first tour started. Now, when it first opened, you had to wear hard hats Mm -hmm. and sign a waiver. And then for a while, you didn't have to wear hard hats, but you still had to sign a waiver. And it's only within the past few years that you can just, like, go. (laughs) Because it is labeled a Mm semi-ruin. And... They do not plan to restore it. They don't want to restore the whole thing. The idea is that they want to stabilize it and keep it as right. a ruin. So they, they had to get it to a point where it's safe, but without completely redoing everything. Right. So they've got it to where it's safe, and now they're working on getting it to the point where it doesn't keep falling apart actively. Yes. And there's certain areas of the prison that they have restored, um, but it's more so to show... Here's an example of what it used to look like next to what it looks like now. Or Various eras of the yes. the long history next to one another. But still the majority of it is left as ruin, which is really cool. Like, yeah. got, the paint is chipping off, things are rusted, things are falling apart. There's, you know, tile that's come off the walls. It's just crazy. It's gorgeous and it looks terrifying. It does. It does. Uh, it was also a filming location for 12 Monkeys. It was. So if you want to walk in the footsteps of Bruce Willis, there you go. Uh, check it out. With a mission, you get an audio tour. Mm-hmm. Which So all is of our f- pictures from there, we look like total dorks with these things around <laughs> our necks and our headphones in. Now, first off, I'm not, normally not someone for audio tours. They just... This was a great audio It tour. was. I have to say, we probably listened to like 90% of what was yeah. available. It yeah. was... It was great. It's also narrated mm-hmm. by a very famous actor. And I have since learned, because this actor says their own name. He does introduce himself for the first time I've ever heard him introduce himself. The world says his name wrong. <laughs> Every single person says his name wrong. It so, is... without further ado, here is the proper pronunciation of his name. Steve Buscemi. <gasps> Not Buscemi. <laughs> Buscemi. Who knew? He, he knew. He no one else knew. He just wasn't telling us. It was the first it's thing the first we learned. It's the first thing. And we both just turned and gasped at each other. This, this incredible fact right from the top. <laughs> That's what I knew. That's when I knew that was going to be a great day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's also full of art exhibits that I think are really cool. Yeah. Many of the cells are home to... Uh, artists' installations, uh, yeah. mostly about, well, yeah, all of them about the prison system, some specifically about Eastern State. Yes, uh, which we have some pictures of those we'll put up. Those, mm-hmm. those are really, really interesting. They're very powerful yeah. in a cell um, I, like it, that. In the context, for sure. Yes. So then after there, we yeah, went your second to choice. my second choice, the Mutter Museum. Uh, another one recommended by listeners. Yes. Um, it is a museum of medical oddities, part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. 
It is an original collection donated by Dr. Thomas Mutter in 1858. Which has grown and expanded yes. since, naturally. This this is one thing I will not be sharing pictures of because you are not allowed to take pictures inside. Because most of the exhibits are actual human remains. Yes. So, so they, they ask that you don't take pictures out of respect for the deceased. I will say it is one of the most like beautifully designed museums. Oh, yeah. Like it is, It's a smaller display thing it's a smaller place but like the way everything is displayed the lighting it is gorgeous walking into probably not for the the, those i got lightheaded at one point i had to sit down in the middle of a museum so probably not for those faint of heart or you know that can't really handle seeing like a wall of human skulls there's some incredible stuff yes uh they have Grover Cleveland's tumor from when he got surgery yeah. on a boat. Yeah, they do. They have uh, my- microscope slides of Einstein's brain. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, they have a wall, an entire wall of human skulls. Um, it's also kind of divided up into like various conditions yeah, there's and like diseases. The and... skin disease area, the intestinal gastro yes. disease area. The, the thing that you got lightheaded about was actually one of my favorite things in there. I agree. It's I mean, cool. it's, su- it's super... It's super terrible. Yeah. So it was uh, the skeleton of this guy who had a condition where his tissue would turn into bone. Yeah. Like anything that wasn't bone could turn into bone. So if he got bumped, it would turn into a bone, an extra bone growth. If like he yeah. th- he broke his arm, well, then there was like an extra bone growth out of that. His skeleton grew a second skeleton, yeah. essentially, and his connective tissue eventually became bone. And he uh, eventually in his life, the muscles to his jaw became bone, so he could not eat solid food. Yes, and then like his his lungs turned to bone, and he couldn't breathe. Type thing, and and that is what ended his life. Super, super terrible. Mm-hmm. I just got and sad when I was but... reading the thing. I was just thinking about what life would. I was trying to put myself in his shoes. Yeah, and that's what got me woozy because that was an awful condition to live with. Absolute, like horrific type of condition. The skeleton is there, and you see the skeleton with mm-hmm. the additional skeleton. It's just to see it and to know that that is real is really crazy. It's incredible. It's the museum is like three rooms and we spent at least 2 hours there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um just cuz there's, there's there's so, so much to it's look incredibly at. dense and yeah. wonderful. Then we went to Macy's. <laughs> we did go to Macy's. Philadelphia's Center City Macy's was originally the the building was Wanamaker's department store. Uh, the first department store in Philadelphia. Uh, the, the current building was designed and built by Daniel Burnham. Hey! Uh, who laid out the, the Chicago plan, uh, built the, the 1898 World's Fair, uh, the Flatiron Building in New York. Daniel Burnham's everywhere. He, he's the man he's for pre- architecture. He's pretty great. But there are two interesting historical pieces, aside from the building itself, I suppose, yes. in this Macy's. Which, this like, I had heard, like, to go to this Macy's for this thing. And you were like, why is Macy's on your list of, like, <laughs> things to go do? And I was like, well, I heard there's something there. And then we met someone who was like, oh, you know what you should do? You should go to the Macy's. And I was like, see, I'm not the only one. People are telling, talking about Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> these, these two objects are both... 
uh, from the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, the, the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition. Uh, one is the eagle, a 2,500-pound bronze statue of an eagle by uh, August Gall, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like the, the little... The feathers. The feathers are incredible. The feathers are so cool on it. And the note about how they had to install extra girders in the basement <laughs> to hold up the eagle so it wouldn't just fall through the floor. Yeah. But the the really cool piece they have in, in this gallery is the Wanamaker organ, the largest fully functioning pipe organ in the world. Uh, it's so big, it uh, bankrupted the company that built it for the St. Louis World's Fair. Uh, so it was bought sort of on the cheap and uh, moved to Wanamaker's in 13 freight cars. <laughs> but when it got there, Mr. Wanamaker said, eh, not quite big enough. He wanted it to fill the whole seven-story court with, you know, its lovely pipes and its lovely sound. So he opened an organ factory in the store's attic to keep at it. <laughs> So it kept growing and growing and, and getting all these banks of new pipes. Uh, it Just looking at all the keys and all the switches and all the organ bits is incredible. Yeah. But there are currently 28,500 pipes on this organ and work on it finished finally in 1930. Yeah. And it's it's fully functioning. Like, yeah. they play it. We We did not get to hear it. Um, we didn't know the schedule. We we just showed up at the bad time. Yeah, but they, they play, play it, it twice a day yeah. more now that we're in the holiday season. Yeah. So then we we got back to some of uh, the the Philly history stuff, and we we had a bit of a cleanup moment, and checked out the Benjamin Franklin Museum. Mm -hmm. Now Ben Franklin, we're we're going to try to skip through this because this is a guy that could do at least two of our normal episodes yeah. on his own. Ben Franklin did everything. He invented yeah. kite swimming. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he was the first tornado chaser. Yes. <laughs> uh, he didn't patent any of his inventions. He just wanted them free and open to the people. So the things we know he invented, like, you know, bifocals, like the terms battery and positive and negative for how we use them in electricity. Uh, the things we know about are just things his friends thought were cool enough to write down themselves in documents that still survive. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what all he made in his spare time. Yeah. Like, say, the seal of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe the first line of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. We hold these truths to be self-evident is not Jefferson's work. It's Franklin's. Uh, there was a big debate on the floor back on July 3rd about how exactly to word that first clause. And Ben Franklin won in mm -hmm. the end. He did so many things. His four-volume autobiography only goes up to the 1750s. <laughs> he ran out of time to write about the whole independence thing. <laughs> Now, something you enjoyed is that he loved squirrels. He loved squirrels so much. At he the, would mail people squirrels. At the time, they were called skugs. Skugs. <laughs> He's a skug. I do love that the museum is filled with little, like, squirrels mm -hmm. that are dressed up. It's, uh, <laughs> it's an all-ages museum. So some of the more, like, fun facts, like, hey, kids... Uh, in order to point out those signs, they have a little Skugs, which is yes. the name of the squirrel. Yes. Very cute. Yeah. Now, outside of the museum is the, the courtyard in the center of this block. Uh, and it has what they call ghost houses. Uh, just 
big steel beams marking the corners and the roof of where Ben Franklin's home stood and next to it, his grandson's printing business. Uh, now, if you go into the one with his home, you can see excavated foundations of where Ben Franklin lived, mm -hmm. uh, much like in the president's house. But in this case, one of the foundation windows points to a little well uh, where the it it's below the Franklin toilet and where all their <laughs> sewage went. Yeah. I it's their poop pit. It's the yes, you can <laughs> you can see Benjamin Franklin's poopy pit. And that's something I learned, and now you have to know it too, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Okay, that's the last uh, site we have to talk about. It's not the last thing we learned. I'd like to encourage everyone to check out Independence National Park and the other sites in and around Philadelphia. We had a great time. So after we left Philadelphia, mm -hmm. we, we spent several days in other parts of Pennsylvania for wedding stuff and friend visiting stuff and all that. And we took in a couple other places. Yeah. we uh, One of the places we went was Knobles, which is America's largest free admission amusement park you can um, walk right up you don't even have to pay for parking people love when you don't have to yes, pay for parking we were told so many times about this so it opened in uh 1926 uh when henry knoble opened a carousel and restaurant near a popular picnic area and started it, it all and just grew and grew one ride after another um it is home to a lot of like historical old-fashioned uh park rides and fair games um, one My, of, I do love how it's it's not because they're particularly historical minded. It's because they bought them when they were new. Yeah, they've just <laughs> been there that long and they've kept them. Yeah, they they like the charm of it and would rather not replace them. Yeah. I don't know if they can afford to replace them. It's, ah, I'm not looking at their books. Um, the Grand Carousel they yes, have. The, they purchased it in 1942. The gem of Knobles, really. Yes. Uh, it was built in 1913 with... 63 hand-carved horses and three chariots. Um, it's one of the largest and oldest carousels still in operation. Mm -hmm. Now, it's the thing that makes it really cool is it still has a working ring dispenser. So, like, the carousel ring catch thing, that, which is almost gone. Practically nowhere. It's super hard to find those anymore, um, mostly because people, like, take the rings and it's not cost-effective for them anymore. And um, They have it. Yeah, you it did was, very well. Yes. How many did you get? Four. You got four. I got five. <laughs> uh, it was very exciting. They also have a carousel history museum, which is very small, but pretty cool. Yeah. They have some very, very old pieces in there. I didn't learn much about carousel facts because no. I was too busy just looking at the really cool painted horses and things. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty neat. Their rides are very charming. Mm -hmm. And there's like certain like pavilion-y things that are just very old-timey and unlike what you see at amusement parks nowadays they have some old fairground games that are also almost extinct yeah um one thing which it's it's new it's a new thing that they've built but but very old-fashioned very old-fashioned thing is um the flying turns yes the flying turns it is a trackless roller coaster yeah and it is crazy <laughs> it's like it's a it's a toboggan roller coaster one of those trackless ones that's very popular in like the 1920s yeah, it was a Coney Island thing. Yeah. Um, they, Coney doesn't have it. Knobles does. They opened this one two years ago after something like 10, wasn't it two years ago? It's two or three years ago after a long time in construction. Yes, very, very long time. Um, it was cool. 
I wonder how we didn't die. It was my favorite ride, yeah. It was really, really neat. Uh, so Knobles was cool. Knobles is great. It was very unlike anything I've been to before. Pay $3 to ride the flying turns. Yeah. And then a, pay a dollar for a pickle on a stick. And then look around and see what else interests you. It's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we went to Centralia after Knobles. Um, Centralia is an abandoned coal town. Mm-hmm. So in 1962, a trash fire in a mine ignited a coal seam, which burns to this day and could burn for another 250 years. So today, Centralia is pretty much a ghost town. Uh, less than 10 people live there. Um, it is Pennsylvania's least populated municipality. I'm not sure if it even counts as a municipality anymore. I mean, it just has like, 10 house it, people. It like, had its zip code revoked. Like, the 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 last count I saw was seven people holding out. Yeah. And that was in 2013. Yeah, I don't think it counts as that anymore. <laughs> so the fire covers an estimated 3,700 acres. Though the fire started in 1962, locals didn't learn about the danger of it until 1979 when a gas station owner found that the gasoline in his tanks were at 179 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not okay. You know what I like about this gas station attendant? Hmm. He was also a mayor at the time. Really? Well, that's good that he uh, found this out. (laughs) Getting to the bottom of things, Mayor. So in the 1980s, health problems uh, began to happen uh, as locals were exposed to carbon monoxide and toxic gases. And then sinkholes started opening. The city was almost entirely abandoned and uh, every uninhabited building had been condemned and now leveled. Um, there's yeah. very, very few things to see. There's pretty much nothing it's left. It's a town that isn't there anymore. Yeah, it's, that's why it took us a while to find it, because we were like, it's wait, like, was that it? Did we did we miss it? Like, <laughs> we must have missed it. Give, if you go, the thing that gives you a clue you are there is the pavement color changes. Yeah, it goes from your typical highway pavement, It, it then it gets this reddish tint. Yes, it's some type of other, which look. Thinking about it, looking at it, it looked like it was some type of rubbery thing, which must be able to like move with the heat and expand right. so and it everything. Doesn't have to deal with what happened to old Route 61. Yes. So where, where it used to go. Yeah, Route 61 used to go over the fire until it was rerouted. So there's an abandoned stretch of the road that has become a graffiti highway. It's it's you know cut off from the main roadway. You have to get out of your car and walk and it has been spray painted all over every by single inch. Every single inch, um, mostly and it, with genitalia. Yeah, lots of that. Lots of that. Um, it is the road itself, though, is splitting apart. Mm-hmm. It, it is pulling apart from itself. The further it's, down you go, the the more destroyed the pavement is. Yeah, which is really one of the few things to see there. There's apparent. There's also like a cemetery and a church that still stands. And there was that by where we parked our car, there was a fence from someone's front house still left caught yeah. in some trees. You, you will find some interesting things for your hashtag no filter Instagram account if you go through with like a fine tooth comb. Yeah. But there, there's nothing big. Yeah. There's really nothing left. It's, it's very, it's very strange because as we said, like there's nothing to say like you've made it there. Other than street signs suddenly disappear, and there's just <laughs> lots of turnoff points that just kind of seem like back road alley things, but those probably were once main roads. You just once a, once upon a time. Once upon a time. 
So it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I wish we could have explored it more, but it was getting pretty late that day. So Sorry. that's our sites we saw and wanted to share with you mm-hmm. uh, in our, our Pennsylvania trip. Yeah. Uh, if you have the opportunity to check out any of these things for yourself or some things we might have missed, uh, absolutely take it. We, we had a great time and found it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, enough to fill an extra large episode. Yeah. And we'll be right back with some mail and fun things like that. So, like I said, we've got some mail. Yeah. Let's read it. Okay. It should be pretty easy to guess who we're starting off with. It's our latest and greatest letter from Purin. Hey. Porin tells the story of uh, the Japanese building a railway across uh, a mountain range, uh, tying back into the actual bridge on the River Kwai he wrote about a few episodes ago. So they were met with trouble like, say, Burmese pythons uh, and deadly underwater caves. Goodness. And just the fact that if you're building a railway in wartime... In a sweltering jungle, it takes about 10,000 people dying before you finish. So thanks for writing, Lauren. Lauren from uh, Sunday School Dropouts uh, sent us a letter. This, this is a question that is near and dear to my heart. It is about the name JJ the Horse-Faced Horse. The proper spelling. Yes. She wants to know how it is spelled. So, JJ the Horse-Faced Horse. Mm-hmm. JJ... Is the first name. Okay. Spelled J-A-Y space J-A-Y. Okay. Horse-faced horse is not a last name because horses don't have last names. That would be silly. That would be silly. It's like it's it's title. Okay. Well, there you go, Lauren. There you go. So everyone knows. <laughs> uh, Ian writes in to tell us about the Winchester Mystery House as his favorite spooky haunted place. Uh, the Winchester Mystery House was built by the widow of Mr. Winchester of rifle fame and rifle fortune. Uh, and so the, the tale goes that she wanted to build a never-ending house to confuse vengeful spirits of the restless dead. Uh, so there are all sorts of odd and inexplicable architectural details like staircases that go to nowhere and doors that open uh, where there shouldn't be doors. It's a tourist attraction where you can go and check out this uh, widow's obsessive home remodeling project and see uh, if you can find any confused ghosts waiting in the wings. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Chris also wrote with a favorite haunt of his in Western Massachusetts, the Northampton State Hospital. Uh, This was a uh, mental hospital that in broad strokes is very similar to Eastern State Penn. It was built to be a modern and forward-thinking and uh, humane way of dealing with the mentally ill that then over the years of uh, uh, short budgets and overcrowding was put to a, a different model of work that did not work for it and became an awful, horrible place to be. So thanks for your letter, Chris. Uh, Glenn sent us an email and shared a ghost story that they heard a few years back uh, concerning Arcadia University in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Apparently the whole campus is just filled with ghost stories, um, likely due to the fact that 
there is a castle on the campus. Castles and ghosts, they go hand in hand. Um, if he remembers correctly, the wife of the family who owned Grey Towers Castle uh, before it was sold to a college that would become Arcadia, suspected a maid of sleeping with her husband and one day had her clean the white walls of a certain room. As the maid cleaned, she was stabbed a lot. The wife had the other maids come in to clean the walls of blood, and they seemed to succeed, but by the next day the stains were back. After a few more attempts to clean, uh, it was decided to just paint the walls red. <laughs> um, so that room's now known as the Red Room. That's one of those, like, classic spooky haunts, but then they turned it into, like, oh, a thinking puzzle. <laughs> Red walls. That just seems like a good idea. And apparently, like, the castle is filled with, like, administrative offices and dorms now, which is... Also terrifying. Yeah. Okay, so thank you, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. James sent us an email. James uh, caught up on some old prompts which we will power through very quickly because there's bam, a lot bam, of them. Bam, bam, lightning round. Let's go. So, favorite place is either Nashville or St. Louis because they're both historic. Or Mall of America because it's a big mall and James likes malls. You know, that's a good reason to like something, James. I can get behind that. Because it is the thing that it is. Yeah. <laughs> His favorite boat is the boat that was filled with diseased rats from a few years ago. That was a thing? Ah, that doesn't sound like it narrows it down at all. I... I don't know what that thing is. Favorite moral panic was the one surrounding Pokemon back when it first appeared on the scene because it got so panicky that the Pope had to come in and say Pokemon is not satanic. Is that why people like John Paul too? Because he said Pokemon was okay? Maybe. That might be why. Favorite musical, don't know, but enjoys Pirates of Penzance. Pirates of Penzance is a great show. It sure is. It's really great. Favorite musical park, but wants to represent world's largest water park, Noah's Ark. In Wisconsin. Is that by the Wisconsin Dells? They love to Probably. get wet in Wisconsin. Wisconsin love Dells it. has a lot of water parks. Is it by there? I don't know. And uh, shared a couple haunted places uh, from where they're around. The first place is the Blue Moon Cafe, where workers claim to see apparitions of a bellboy. And customers claim to see the ghost of an elderly woman. Uh, secondly, there is the Grand Opera House, which has a ghost of an old employee who appears as a smiling ghost with big round glasses. Well, that sounds cool. The ghost of Harry Potter. So yeah, thank you, James, for so many, uh, for catching up on all that. That's that's a that's, lot of questions. That is one concentrated letter, James. Thank you. Claritic writes to give me specifically a history lesson. Oh. I made a joke tweet a while ago about how Matthew Sweet's girlfriend, the, the music video, was the first AMV, which is to say anime music video it is a genre on youtube i was confused by what that was <laughs> i think our demographic might know the song best from being in guitar hero 2 or 3 whichever one it was but it turns out i was almost right now the first amv uh was made in 1982 by a guy named jim kapostas who uh, dubbed over a montage of some incredibly violent scenes from an anime called Star Blazers with the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. And that is credited as the first anime music video. Uh, it's also the first ironic one, which is a great way to start your art form, although it is now lost. So, in a way, uh, the Girlfriend music video is the first, is the oldest AMV that we still have. If not the first. 
Cool. So thanks for educating me on being accidentally sort of right, Claire. <laughs> thanks for your letter. Darnell sent us an email. A few questions. First, uh, will we ever do a special video podcast? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. We don't own a camera. <laughs> <laughs> like a video camera. Yeah, that is... That's the first problem there. We don't have that. <laughs> so... No. <laughs> but thank you for enjoying the thing I did sort of like that with my friend. Yeah, and I'm sure it'd be very cute interacting on screen, but then I wouldn't be able to, like, wear my pajamas while doing this. So, <laughs> also another downside. Second question, will we ever do a fan meetup? Ah, never say like, never. if we go to a place with history, say New York City, would we be willing to meet people? Maybe. I mean... I mean, we've kind of done that stuff... Not historical meetup things, but, like, when we go to, like, C2E2, we're always like, hey, we're here if you want to come say hi. Yeah. So, maybe. We, on this past trip, our schedule was just so full. Yeah. If if we went somewhere where we actually had time to... That's the thing. Like, extra time, Um, we, we had a very short, like, two days, basically, to see everything we wanted to see. Darnell also says, congrats on the Cubs winning the World Series. You guys must be so proud of your home team. Oh. We're proud. We're proud of both of them, Darnell. Yeah, there's two of them. Everyone forgets the White Sox, but come on, Southside. We are Southsiders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By geography and inclination. Yes. <laughs> While uh, the Cubs might be world champions, the White Sox set a world record this year. Puppies! For most dogs attending a sporting event. And we were there. We were at that game. We know who the real winners are. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Darnell. Thanks, Darnell. So that's all of our letters. If you would like to send us a letter to uh, maybe get read in the listener mail segment, mm -hmm. where can you send those emails? Uh, you can send that to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank and you. Do, do we have a prompt for next week? We do. I would like to hear about people's favorite sports moment. Ooh. Yeah. That's a cool one. I yeah. expect to get some really cool favorite sports moments yeah. from all, all of our lovely listeners. Yeah. So uh, as a reminder to people, mm -hmm. not only can you follow us via our podcast here, but we have a Twitter. We have a Twitter. We have a Facebook. We have a Facebook that is about to have some fantastic pictures yes. of things we just mentioned. Yes. Um, and we also have an Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, just before recording this, uh, we put up even more pictures on Instagram of things related to episode five. Yeah. The uh, Iroquois fire. Yes. So if you're interested in seeing some kind of present day stuff that is related to that, check that out. All of those social media sites, you can find us at History Honeys. Mm -hmm. Nice and easy there. <laughs> uh, and while you're online getting in touch with us, why don't you help us get in touch with some other people? Giving us a rating and review on iTunes uh, does so much to help. We got another note on Facebook from somebody who found us through their podcast app. Yeah. The, the it's starting recommendation to work, guys. engine. It's starting to work. And it's all because of you, and my heart goes out. Thank you so much. And uh, you can also... Tell a friend. The best way to tell people about us is to to spread the knowledge. Just tell a friend who you think would find us interesting. Tell your mom. Tell your doctor. <laughs> tell your electrician. Yeah. I don't know. Do tell you... anyone. We fought, We made a lot of new friends at the wedding we went to we and did. got some new listeners. So hi there, guys. Uh, hi, hope T. You, hope, hope you're still listening. Hi, Chuck. Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> 
Say hi to baby Sophia. <laughs> I miss that child. She was really cute. Um, so tell people, pass on the word. Um, we would love to have them come check us out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like we mentioned, uh, thank you for listening to us talk about many things, but much of it, the birth of our country, the, the foundation of American democracy. So go out and enjoy it today. Go vote. Go make use of the rights you were born I'm with. I'm going to be mad if you don't go vote. I don't want to hear none of that. Like, oh, I don't know who to vote. Make uh, a decision. You're I'm an adult sure. who's old enough to vote. Go vote. Yeah. I'm going to get mean here. Go vote. <laughs> I'm like shaking my finger at the mic. I hope you know this. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey.